Okay, greetings. So, my sister, Dr. Florence Merwindi, will pray for us. Okay, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we want to thank you for this great morning. We thank you for the conference, and we thank you for this particular session. Uh, Lord, as we come to submit to you, seeking your instruction, uh, may we hear your voice. May we be directed and guided by your Holy Spirit. Lord, may our hearts be receptive to you, and uh, we just uh, commit ourselves to you. Lord, uh, honor yourself. And uh, indeed, um, may, we, may we hear you in this session. We surrender to you. We thank you for the speaker, the speakers, and we pray, Father, that you use us as tools for your kingdom in this session. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, we are co-presenting this session with my, my brother. The objectives, the, the learning objectives in this uh, session is that we may know the issues of dependency and the problems created by it and what is the solution. We'll also talk about the missions uh, being everywhere to everywhere and what that means. And then an example of an American church and an African organization working together. And, and that's why we are presenting together. Um, so you can sit down and when I finish, I'll call you up. Yes. <laughs> so in our relationship, and I work for the Ministry of Life in Abundance, um, how we started off relating to to Southeast and getting to know Charlie. Um, my family and I were actually serving as missionaries in Ethiopia, um, 1997, about 18 years ago. And uh, we had the elders of this church come over to Ethiopia uh, to visit the work that we were doing. Uh, that was Russ and Jane Sami. And as we began to discuss what we were doing, they felt they wanted this church to be involved in that work. So they came back, and we shortly came and visited the church, and they began to work with us from a very, very humble beginning, just partnering with one indigenous church and working with one community. And it was very clear, we're going to do this for three years, and then we will evaluate. Um, at the end of the three years, we, we were registered as a 501c3 here in the U.S., and we had a further discussion on how that would be. Um, it's continued to grow from that very humble beginning. I met Dr. Charlie when I joined a Southeast mission trip to, to Afghanistan, and we met in Kabul. Um, as we were ministering to people in, in the displaced state. Southeast at that time was seeking how they can be involved in a holistic way in their response to refugees in Kabul, uh, being a closed country, and they were seeking that experience from us because we had served in several countries that were closed countries under the partnership of Southeast. Um, we did that 
uh, trip together and uh, that was I think the example, the, the initial example of how we can work together, speak into each other and together establish partnerships with indigenous churches in the countries that we serve. Um, soon after that, Southeast invited us to be a strategic partner uh, with them, 2007. So we came up with our strategic directions and uh, shared that with the, the missions committee uh, as to where we were going for the next seven years. We actually planned out seven years and invited them to be part of that. Uh, the whole uh, board, the International Board of Life in Abundance, um, representing the churches that we work with, came and sat down with the leaders of Southeast and spoke into those uh, strategic directions. And together we, we just owned them from that time. At that time, uh, Dr. Charlie was serving um, as, an, as a leader uh, on the committee and advisory, on the advisory committee for South, Southeast um, in missions. So he was fully involved in that, and we just began to work together and to walk together. Um, it's just been an amazing journey getting to know Charlie. We've uh, traveled um, to different parts. We've gone together in Egypt and began the work there, examining the initial stages, prayer walking, identifying the churches, and uh, moving together in that work. Um, we've also gone together in other places like South Sudan. Uh, they've just been in Djibouti. Uh, so over these years, we've just partnered together to serve the indigenous church. I've known uh, Dr. Charlie as one who takes risks, um, especially in serving in the closed countries, identifying the underground church and seeking them out to partner. I've also seen him as somebody who is very, very supportive, um, in engage, engaging not only us as a ministry, Life in Abundance, but also engaging those that we serve with and uh, not being afraid to try, uh, to fail, and, uh, and be found in the front line. I've also known him as one who takes time to pray, um, to hear God in prayer, so that as we, as we walk together, as we engage, it's not coming from a reasoning, uh, but it's coming from the voice of God uh, in his instruction. Um, in this case, we are pre co-presenting together because we just feel if it's partnerships, it needs to be displayed partnerships. Um, yeah. Let me introduce Dr. Florence Mwindi and give you a little background on her. Florence um, is one of 20 children that grew up in Kenya. She um, is married to Festus. They have two boys. Uh, all three of whom are in ministry. Uh, Florence uh, is a physician. She has a master's in public health, and she is the founder of an organization, Life in Abundance, who works in about ten countries in East Africa, two countries in the Caribbean, and she, they also work in the U.S. The, the goal of Life in Abundance is to really to empower the indigenous church. And honestly, in our partnership that Southeast Christian has had with Life in Abundance, we have really deeply been impacted by um, their approach to ministry and how, and the role, the key role the church plays in uh, moving the gospel down the road. I want to share just briefly my story. Um, I, I was a dentist. I guess I'm still a dentist. 
trained uh, at University of Kentucky. I practice about a half a mile down the road. This is my home church. And I did a lot of mission trips where I went and I, we helped a lot of people. But what's inevitable the last day, right? There's still 100 people in line, and we got to catch a flight. So I'm in Jamaica, and a friend of mine came up to me, and he said, okay, I know we have to leave in an hour. What am I supposed to tell these people? I said, Paul, I don't know what you tell these people, but we're like knee-deep and broken off root tips, root tips and uh, you do tell them what you want. So he left. Fifteen minutes, he comes back. And this time, he's crying like a baby. And I looked at his tears, and I said, what on earth is this about? He goes, no, Charlie, I need to know. What am I supposed to tell them? I said, what are you talking about? we got to go. He goes, no. These are my friends. I know their story. Some of them have come for days to get here, and now we're just going to say, hey, sorry about that, we got to go. Well, through Paul's tears, I was deeply impacted by, wait a minute. God, this is not the way you would do something. That we would leave these people untreated and behind. And maybe next year when we come back, they might be able to get some help. But what are they supposed to do in the meantime? So, as it would happen, I met this man named Steve Saint. And he asked me a simple question. He said, Charlie, why do you go and teach dentistry? Why, why do you go and do dentistry? Why don't you go teach them? And I said to Steve, are you crazy? It, it took me four years to learn how to do this, and I'm going to do that in a six-day mission trip, teach them how to, to take out teeth? He was a wise man. He, never, he didn't say anything else. He left it at that, and he let the Holy Spirit take it from there. So then we started about 12 years ago to remote areas in Africa, India, Southeast Asia, where there's no access to dental care, teaching Christians how to give a shot and take a tooth out with great success, especially in heavily Muslim and Hindu areas. So that's my story about a solution to dependency that we're looking at. Florence is going to share her story. For me, my story really began when we were in the mission field. We had been there for about three years and um, began a medical ministry. I've been involved in medical ministry now for 27 years. But on this particular time, uh, we were just wondering, how do we uh, continue to be involved in a medical ministry that's also serving other needs? Um, we had been working with the lepers in Ethiopia. Uh, the ministry there was beginning to thrive. And um, there were still many more needs that were not met. And so it was difficult to just be content that the sick are being seen and uh, they are being taken care of. They are going home. Um, but they are coming back again with about the same, same situations that we had treated them for. And uh, obviously we were not making an impact. Um, my concern was we could be there almost like trying to dry the floor from a leaking roof and never go up there to fix the leaking roof and never accomplish anything uh, because as soon as we exit, um, the room would just flood again. 
With that in mind, I was just convinced that medical missions among, especially the poor and the vulnerable, uh, needs to be done differently. Um, I think my breaking moment, really what I call my aha moment to needing to partner with the indigenous church in doing medical missions, uh, was one day when we were hosting a vacation Bible school. Uh, 400 children were going to be coming to our home to be... Uh, to celebrate Christmas, really it was Christmas Eve of 1999. Um, we were planning to have like a, a tea and bread, and that for many of the children was going to be the only highlight for their, for their Christmas event. So I went down to the city, Addis Ababa, to buy bread. Um, I needed to go very early in the morning because um, bread would get finished, especially on Christmas Eve. And Addis Ababa at that time, there wasn't much resource. As I was coming back at uh, 5.30 a.m. towards the community where we were staying, um, very early in the morning, I stopped suddenly because there was, there was something in the middle of the road. And uh, it could be anything. It could be just a luggage that was left there, or it could be an object that was uh, left there, or it could be a baby, a cow, whatever. So I stopped to look to see what was happening. And I realized it was, it was a mother with a baby on her back, and she was one of the lepers. Um, she was moving across the road slowly uh, because it was wet and slippery. And so I was just arrested there waiting to, to give her time to cross. Um, as I waited there, I sort of looked to see where she had come from. And I realized she had come from a trash pit. Um, a trash pit in a very poor community, uh, the leper community as it were at that time, very early in the morning, needing to rise up in the morning to be fast at the trash pit to pick something to eat. And um, I looked more closely at the trash pit and I realized there were children there, uh, children ages five, six, seven, uh, going through the trash, anxiously looking for something to eat. Um, being arrested there, the children thought I had stopped for them, so they rushed over to the car to beg. Um, I had seen street children before coming from Kenya, and uh, I had just dismissed that as something that um, is a nuisance. It's something that I should not be involved in. I'm a medical doctor. My focus is medical missions. Uh, so as they came to the car to beg, um, our eyes locked uh, that morning, and I saw the reality of their predicament. Um, I saw their misery, I saw their anxiety, their fear, um, their panic that they may not get something to eat for the day, and uh, how they were looking up to me. Um, I was broken at that time and realized much as we are ministering to the, to the leper community, and uh, much as we are doing medical missions that people are appreciating, um, just a few meters from our house is this trash pit. And uh, this, is, this is the food for many people in this community. And I just felt uh, this cannot be, this is not right that it would be happening. As we reflected over that Christmas, I began to justify that, you know, I have, we have 400 children that we are attending to, so that's, that's enough responsibility already. I began to justify that we are involved in the leper ministry and we are only one family. So, you know, we can, we can let somebody else take care of that. Um, but the more I justified, the more I realized God does not invite us in that way. He invites us to bring 
transformation or development. He invites us to see him worshipped and glorified in these communities, that he may have dominion and his desire that he may bring blessing in the places where we go. I began to just ask myself, how can this be done? Um, How can we do this? And the answer was very clear that uh, the kind of response that we were going to have was not a response that was going to be based on us. It was not a response that we would become heroes and bring a change. It was going to be a response that involves the indigenous church. Um, One that makes the church the hero. We were going to respond by actually equipping the church to not only respond in the medical, in the spiritual, in the, the other needs, uh, but be there long term to work alongside these people. It would only also be the church that the community gets to know, um, so that they are not knowing us, they are not associating us with what is happening, but then the glory is going back to God. And that for us was the beginning of a model that has gone on with Life in Abundance to this day, that we keep the local church in the center. We go into a community and ask ourselves, where are the local churches? And we identify them, uh, we equip them, we partner with them for the three years. At the end of the three years, uh, we make sure that they are able to do what we as a team are able to do. And we can step out of the way and leave behind an empowered indigenous church. participating in their own development and in a sustained way uh, bringing glory to God. Uh, Being a witness, being salt and light in their community and that we we are not an entity anymore, uh, that they can continue to not only serve as we were one aspect, but serve all the aspects of the community, um, leaning on God and walking in his way. Uh, So finding it invaluable to partner with the indigenous church. I'll go ahead and just share very briefly what are the principles that we have found uh, that work in in partnering with the indigenous church. And I'll just display them, then we can briefly go over them. Um, It is first by beginning and realizing that uh, dependency kills development. Um, If we do things for people um, that they should be doing, or if we remain the knowledgeable in the community, we actually very quickly become their God. Um, They begin to look to us. uh, They begin to to revere us. uh, They begin to see us as the solution to all their problems. Um, And that is not right. Uh, We are meant to reflect the glory to God. Uh, We are meant to reference him as our savior, our joint savior, even with the people that we serve. And just realizing these, even the least of these, are the brothers of Christ, brothers and sisters of Christ. So serving them in equal ways and serving them alongside uh, enables development to just pick up. That development could be in managing their health, and really their health is more than just the absence of disease. That development could mean them providing for themselves clean water so they're not continually getting sick, but it could also mean having a means of income. 
so that they can support their own children other than us supporting their children. Um, it's, it's just right that people participate in their own development. Uh, they own it. They receive dignity. Um, they become confident and can worship God other than lean on, lean on people. Um, it is a commitment to God's desire for the nations. Um, God desires that he be glorified in the nations. Uh, he desires that he be in church, almost like bring dominion, uh, because that's the establishment of the kingdom of God. And it really takes breaking the chains of injustice, um, releasing the people to worship God, uh, basically implementing Isaiah 61, um, preaching the good news to the poor, changing their mourning into, into joy, um, releasing them to worship God. He desires that he may not only have dominion, but that he may bring a blessing. And uh, the blessing can only become manifest if people begin to own their own development. And not only own their own development physically, but spiritually. So a commitment to God's desire for the nations will lead us to the indigenous church. Uh, because in their existence, they represent the purpose of God. They are the institution God has put in place, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Uh, we've realized the church, even in its weakest form, is still the change agent that God has chosen. Um, even in its most corrupt or defiled way, it is still the bride of Christ. And uh, partnering with the indigenous church enables us to go where God is and uh, begin to draw people to God. The goal is to disciple nations and communities, and there is no better equipped um, institution to bring about discipleship uh, than the indigenous church. Um, even as para-church organizations, we are not mandated to do baptisms. We are not mandated to, to do things that the church should be doing. Um, even in us doing discipleship, uh, we cannot continually be there to do those discipleships. Um, the church is there for the long term. They will grow together. Uh, the body of Christ will fellowship together in their local community. And therefore, they, they desire to be involved in discipleship in these communities through the local church. Uh, the other principle is that the recipients of what we are doing should set their agenda. And in their organized way through the local church, they have that voice. Uh, the leadership is already in place. The natural leadership is already uh, elected. Um, the people that are right uh, from the community's viewpoint are in place. And in partnering with those people that the community continually every Sunday comes to, uh, then we are able to hear their decisions, hear their agenda, and walk alongside, because that's basic in development. Um, we found as, as life in abundance and in the communities that we serve, unless prayer is, is central, um, unless we prayer walk the areas where we, we are involved in and uh, break some of the things that can only be broken through prayer and fasting. We can continually do things 
but without a foundation, and we leave and they, they fall apart. Um, prayer is so key in, uh, in establishing this work. And there is no better custodian of prayer in a community than the local church. Um, they exist to do that. So fostering that prayer um, through the local church just attracts us to the need to partner with the local church and equip her to be the one involved in praying. The integration of what we do with evangelism and discipleship uh, becomes so natural if it is, we're used to this in Africa, so it's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, integrating discipleship and evangelism with what we do again becomes the real reason why we go to spread the kingdom of God. Um, and doing that alongside and with the local church makes it natural because that's the mandate that the church exists to do. Actually, doing it differently would be literally competing with what the church is supposed to do. So bringing her alongside then puts us together. Um, the local church just takes the central role. The central role in discussing where we are going, who we are going with, um, how that is going to look like, and the management of the outcomes in that community. The church also helps us appreciate the culture and the context in which we work with. Um, they've known some of the things that have hindered development, and they've known it for a long time before we ever got there. And as we partner with them, uh, we overcome that. It's almost like we find protection uh, under that umbrella of the local church. And in that, they take ownership. Um, once they've been appreciated from the very beginning, uh, they've been a firm from the very beginning, they take ownership. And it becomes very easy for us to come to the third year and relinquish our responsibility and leave so that we can go to another community. And that's how it was meant to be, um, that it will not be us staying there forever, but that we would empower and equip and step back. And these become the principles that enable us not to create dependency by involving the local church as a partner. Frequently in the American church, we don't always think of the local church in Addis Ababa or Kabira slums of Nairobi. So I want us to just think just for a minute and talk about the global church. So there's one heaven, right? There's not a Chinese heaven. There's not a Presbyterian heaven. There's not an American church. There's one heaven. And we're all going to be there together one day. There's one church, uh, the bride of Christ. And I think it's helpful for us to think about that in that context. And so we're one big worldwide family on mission uh, under the lordship of Jesus. So as brothers and sisters, we're all going to be in heaven one day, right? So why don't we start acting like it now? Now, that came from my friend Victor. Is Victor here today? No. Oh, okay. This is my African friend that came to the U.S. and he shared that with us. So, especially in the U.S. and the context, aren't we so segregated in the U.S.? And we're all going to heaven together. So, um, not only is it necessary that we 
we love one another. It's commanded that we love one another. So Florence is going to read some scriptures for us, and then we're just going to have a little dialogue. It's, it's displayed here for us. Um, the Bible says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me uh, through their message, that all of them may be one, just as you and me are one and I in you. Uh, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, uh, that they may be one as we are one. In them, I in them, sorry, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So, so twice in this scripture in John 17, <coughs> Jesus says, the world will know that you sent me. So our unity is paramount for the world to see us uh, and the love that we have for, for one another, which is attractive to the world. Florence, do you have anything that you want to share? Yeah, I was just wondering, is there somebody who would like to comment on what does it really mean to love, to love one another um, in partnerships? My husband and I have used uh, a scripture from 1 John 3.18 that says um, you cannot just say that you love one another to show the truth by your actions. Mm. And um, we feel that's what really calls us to go and do and to serve. But, um, when your, uh, our daughter went with us and she said, Mom, when you're here, do you forget that people are black? And I said, I don't know if it's that, Casey, as much as I don't think about me being white. Mm. You know, we're just all one. Yeah. 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 The world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Yeah. It also says, a new command, I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Um, the, the must there really does not give us a choice. Um, you must love one another. And uh, in, in our selfish ways, in our wanting to be heroes or to, to take the glory and uh, partnering in ways that create dependency and cause people to be dependent on us. Um, it is not love. Um, but working together, and only that unity of working together can only come if we sincerely are seeking to love one another. And as it was said, that we're not just saying we love one another, but through action, uh, we are demonstrating we love one another. Um, yeah, I would just say that to this is probably our most effective evangelistic tool that God has given us right here, is that uh, we love one another. Philippians 2, 
talks about the importance of humility, how we approach our relationships with one another, one another in, in humility, and that it says, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. And sometimes I think in our zeal to go and fix problems, we forget about that part. So I'm going to share a little bit about uh, the differences between the Western church and the indigenous church. <coughs> One of the things that, that happens is the, uh, the indigenous church is considered uh, a church, the local church where Florence was talking about, maybe in Africa, India, Southeast Asia, South America, Caribbean, and the Western Church could even, Europe and, and the U.S., and even mega churches in Nairobi can look a lot like Western churches. But if we think about the contrast between the two, a lot of churches uh, have been fighting a tough fight for a long time. And they're just tired. And it can even appear that they've lost hope. But contrast that with an American church. We have so much zeal, don't we? And enthusiasm. If you've been on a short-term trip, you've seen it. There's no problem too big. That's, that's a good thing. Uh, but there's a contrast. So sometimes we can come along and say, why aren't these people, why don't they get going? What's the deal? What's their problem? The next difference is um, sometimes the local church that has been dealing with so many issues that are complex for so long uh, they get focused on today only. And they don't have the luxury of planning. They don't have systems in place. You contrast that with the American church when the earthquake hits Haiti, boom, in days we're flooding that place. We have relief organizations galore that can go down and help. And uh, that's the luxury we have because we can plan. Uh, Many times a local church that's working in tough areas has depleted resources, but that creates innovation. And, uh, and they have to be measured in their response to get the results that are fruitful. Whereas we, in 2008, we spent $2.3 billion on short-term missions. And has ever, anybody ever really d- measured the fruit of that after spending $2.3 billion? That's a debate and conversation that attention will always have. But uh, that shows you the contrast between the two approaches. Many times our brothers and sisters in the local church have suffered for a long time. They're patient. They're waiting. um, And you can see that in their prayer life. Whereas we're not like that, are we? We we, want to go to the next exciting thing. We we want quick outcomes. Uh, Look at how we jumped into war sometimes in the past. And then, uh, or want to be quick to get out. So, the other thing is um, a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world can really help us in understanding the spiritual world, right? They're used to battling and uh, in, in spiritual warfare. And uh, I know our brothers and sisters in Kenya frequently, Friday nights is all-night prayer nights. Uh, I can tell you in our community we don't have very many of those in, in our city. And really the, the enlightenment era really messed us up, didn't it? Back in the late 1700s, it said that spiritual things were for weak-minded people. 
There's no scientific basis for that. Therefore, um, if you want to delve in that, that's fine. But it really makes no logical sense. And so our universities, our education system is inundated with this philosophy that was marked by what was started during the Enlightenment, Enlightenment era. So the bottom line is this. Our strengths are different, but we all have our blind spots. And if we don't work together, if we don't go together, our blind spots get unexposed. And God doesn't get the glory for that. He designed us each that we, to need each other. The global church to need each other. The American church needs to understand just because we have all the financial resources doesn't mean that we have the king, the seat at the table that makes all the decisions. Everybody around the table has equal decision, uh, speaks into the process equally. And sometimes we uh, forget that because we're so good at solving problems. If we don't see our differences, what happens is we tend to judge or even dismiss our brothers and sisters. So we have to learn to appreciate our differences and, and position ourselves to partner with understanding. So we'd like to talk about uh, some examples of this interdependency um, and how this organization, Life in Abundance, which is a parachurch organization that serves to empower the church, works with Southeast Christian Church, which you can look at our campus. This is a pretty big complex, right? And uh, we could easily overpower the local church. Uh, because of um, our attitudes. And we actually want to, to see the local church uh, be empowered, but we can't go directly. Years ago, we went to the Dominican Republic, and the ministry was about, we're going to connect an American church with a Dominican church. It sounds like a good partnership, and it kind of makes sense. So we got to know the pastor, we started paying his salary. Uh, we started helping a couple other people in the church. Uh, we would organize huge short-term teams, and we would go and we would we would dig the trenches for the foundation for their churches. We'd give them money to build their churches, and we never even asked them, "Do you want us to come and help this way?" But they didn't know how to say no, and, and we're still doing that today. Uh, now I'll. The, glo the American church is still doing that too often. We have said, no, we, we can't do that anymore. And that's where our partnership with Life in Abundance has really helped us to understand. You see, Florence grew up in a community that had a Western missionary. And I'd like for you to tell her, for her to tell you her experience of what it was like. So if you'll do that, then we'll open it up to questions. Yeah, just growing up in uh, eastern Kenya... Um, among the Kamba tribe. Uh, we had several missionaries that came and served in the area. It was a needy area and um, was attractive to missionaries to just come and help. Uh, we had a medical facility that was established in the, in the area, and it was, it was well-known, um, popular. Uh, many people would come from several areas to just come and be seen uh, by the nurses and the doctors that were working there. They also had a dental unit, uh, which was actually the, the only dental unit in the whole region there. Uh, so it became very, very busy and uh, popular. 
But there was also another missionary who came and started a school, uh, a girls' school, a boarding school, and uh, it went very well, uh, just put the right disciplines in place, um, worked with the students there for about four years, and then she suddenly died. Um, she died out of a road traffic accident, and uh, years later after her death, about four or five years, the uh, school was taken over by the government, and it was no longer associated with any of the missional principles or values that she had put in that. Same thing happened to the, to the hospital. Um, a government hospital was started in the, in the area. It was giving free services, and uh, the mission agency began to go down. There were less missionaries coming full-time to work in, in that place. And uh, with time, now actually the facility exists, but most of the services are not provided. Uh, they still have a nurse, a national nurse, who runs the facility, uh, but most of the buildings have, have come down. Um, we had a church, and uh, the church was also associated with that same mission agency. Uh, a pastor would come occasionally and be involved in that. I think in my earlier days, what I realized was Missionaries were coming, but sort of doing their thing, uh, staging their show, and eventually, eventually leaving. Um, and I think for me, when I eventually was called into the mission field, one of the things I decided to do was that in the places we go, we will not be known. Um, we will not stage our show. Uh, we will seek the local church. Uh, it will be their show, not our show. And it will be them to be lifted up, uh, other than going back to, to what I had seen happen during my earlier times. Um, there's a saying that you run faster if you run alone. Uh, it's easier. Uh, even in preparing this presentation with Dr. Charlie, it was easier if he could just present or I could present and, you know, we prepare alone. It's quicker. But when we do things together, um, it honors God because there he commands a blessing and uh, the saying says you go fast you go further if you go together uh, you correct one another uh, you see each other's blind spots and are able to move in a way that honors God and uh, is long-lasting um, it does not end when we just leave okay so this is not meant as it's important. Some of the frontier early missionaries did great work, but it's a new day. Uh, the church in Africa is strong now. The church in a lot of places is strong, and, and a lot of times the American church will take the back seat, and we need to recognize our role in that process uh, to really impact the nations. So we're going to open up for question and answer, but I have a question for Florence that some of you guys might have. Florence, would you... Okay, so you've been in the U.S. a fair amount, but on, a lot of times we'll see these videos of these children that are starving or bloated tummies, and they tell their sad story, and it's, it just really rips our heart out. And we feel compelled to do something. And um, so there's a lot of organizations that help that way. Why wouldn't we help that way? Okay, that's, that's a tough question. Um, from what we've discussed this morning, why we should, shouldn't we help that way? 
what's wrong with helping that way? Raise your hand, and I'll repeat the question. It causes dependency. <laughs> it causes dependency. Just to, to say that, it actually causes dependency on you sponsoring that child and um, them looking to you every month that you would continue uh, to bring that money. Um, and uh, that in itself just kills development because they are there waiting for that. Yeah. Oftentimes we don't take enough time to really understand the situation. So it may look like a simple thing to us, maybe far more complex than we know. That's right. The, the response is oftentimes we do not know the context. It may be more complex than just the $30 we sent per month. And... Um, it's, it's bigger than that. Uh, we do not work within that context. And the local church really helps us to navigate through all that. Um, I think I've seen it so repeatedly, repeatedly in Haiti, where you think children are orphans or are in need, but really they are not. Um, they may even be having two, three sponsors uh, working with that. And we are just continually sending the money. Uh, so just uh, navigating the local context and uh, the bigger issue there. Why shouldn't we help that way? I just remember a lot of those organizations, if it's where you're just sending money, a, a large percentage of that doesn't even go to those kids. If they're actually in need, a lot of it just goes to the organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the comment is most of these organizations, really it doesn't get, a lot of the money does not get to the need. It's, it's a small percentage that would get to, to that particular child um, in the name of that child. Okay, questions? Yes. I work in an area of South Sudan where the population has exited. There are a few people left, and the church is struggling. Do you work with churches that are barely functioning? Great in question. Areas like yes. Make sure you repeat the question for them. Yeah. Yeah. The question is, um, and I quote: uh, We work in an area in South Sudan where a church, the ch most of the people have exited, and the church is barely existing. Uh, barely existing. Uh, do we work with churches in those areas? Um, we, we are working in South Sudan. It's been one of the countries that we've traveled with to, before they got their independence to the time of uh, the peace process to now being established. We're working in four areas in South Sudan. Uh, so what you're talking about, about the church and uh, its status right now, is, is very right, uh, barely existing. Even those that are there really are almost like the blind leading the blind. Um, they've not been to, to school. Uh, they know very little about the Bible. Um, they can hardly teach the, the people that are in their churches. Um, in most cases, they actually are under trees, and you know, it's a makeshift church. Um, do we work with churches in those areas? The more reason why we should work with that, that church, uh, the more reason that we need to come alongside them uh, equip them to know the word, enable them to be the ones to proclaim the gospel, and um, enable them to become an attractive bride of Christ. Uh, the more reason why this weekend's church 
is so much in need of us uh, to equip them. Uh, those are the churches that we walk alongside for three years, almost like discipling them to become an institution that can be called the Bride of Christ. Um, yes, uh, that's South Sudan, but we also work with, with churches in the underground um, like we're working with churches in places like Somalia. Uh, we're working in, with churches in Djibouti, uh, places where there's limited access. But it's identifying who are the believers because that's the church, that they can be equipped uh, to be salt and light in that community. Yeah, the question is, in some of the areas where they are working, um, they keep asking, do you need this? Are we supposed to do this? Are these priorities? Are these things that we should be doing? And the answer is always yes. Uh, in other words, they don't find freedom in expressing that, no, this is not a need, or this is a need, but later. Uh, just that dialogue is not, is not an empowered dialogue. Um, did I repeat that right? More or less, okay. Um, it is true, and I think this has, been, um, this has been our case also. In communities where we go and it's us asking them, they will say yes because they see us as a parachurch organization, that we have funding, and if they say no, then we'll go and help someone else. Um, I think the more reason why it is the local church, uh, because if it's the local church asking them, They'll be asking them within their context. And if they give the wrong answer, the church, the members, they are also members of that same community. Um, we also do a training uh, before we ever get to that point of saying, what are our priority needs? Identifying the priority needs together. We take them through a 10-day training on the basics of development. And how can they do a baseline survey, list their priority needs, but also look behind those needs to ask what are the root causes of these things and how can we address these needs in a way that we can eliminate them. Um, and then they become participants in even making the decisions, participants in uh, finding out what are the priority needs um, involving the church. So the, the training and the joint identification of, of the needs. Yeah. I was going to say it cannot be done by a short visit. Uh, it, may, it actually takes us quite a time, like three months before we sit at the table and decide these are the key interventions that are going to be implemented. You know, your question gets to the heart of this discussion because um, it's hard for folks to say no. And when we go into another culture, our context, uh, we have no clue about. And that's why it's important to have an organization like Life in Abundance. And there's many organizations like that. They're that intermediary between 
us as the American church and that local church, or else uh, we can't get to the real issues. Now, I'll just tell you some basic things. We, we don't even understand basic principles like the difference between relief and development. I was with a pastor last week in a town just not right. He didn't even know what I was talking about. There's a huge difference. And you can look at Haiti and see we're still doing relief six years after the earthquake. That does not bring honor to our Father. We have to stop bringing relief. We have to bring development. And so what happened, we rushed in, right? And we offered free medical care. And so the Haitian physicians left. So we get a little donor fatigue. We're not going to hang around. So now these communities are left without health care providers. That's what happens when we rush in. And that's why it's so important that we go together. Can you tell I'm passionate about this? <laughs> Church, I'm telling you, we're missing the point on this. And, and, and we have to be in humility, go to our brothers and sisters and listen and slow down and, and take our time and not be driven by our dollars. That's what can happen so many times. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's a that's a hard one to manage, right? And so if we understand the context of the scripture is clear. If there's a crisis, we go in relief. But as soon as soon as possible, we want to start the development process through the local church by empowering the local church. And uh, so that's just a tension we have to manage. But if we keep going and doing and doing the same things that we've always done and spend our resources this way, uh, it's the problem's only going to get worse. That's right. Even in um, in doing relief, it can be collaborative. Um, it is so much better when an organization would come and uh, still do relief in the initial stages with the local church, uh, because then they 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 are able to see all the, the shortcuts that people are taking. Uh, they are able to challenge uh, people to rise up to provide for themselves. And then they can help you now navigate through, you no longer need relief, you can do this for yourself. Um, and then the, the process is more smoother if the local church was involved in the very beginning. But we can, you know, pull up there and bring out our machinery and begin to do things, um, which just removes the local church. So the question is simple. Who is getting the glory for what we're doing? It's that simple, guys. And so, like, when Life in Abundance goes in to a community, and five years later, the people in that community don't even know who Life in Abundance is. Who is this organization? Never heard of them. And the church is thriving, and the community is experiencing transformation. Praise the Lord. When Charlie goes to Myanmar and I'm watching these guys extract teeth and they don't even know who I am, praise the Lord. That's, that's missions nowadays. It's a new day. But it starts with the foundational piece of that local church experiencing this training and understanding the difference between relief and development where they're empowered, that they're relevant to this community. God has mandated them to be the change agent for this community. They have to stand up and take that responsibility. We can't tell them as Americans that. We have to have our brothers and sisters 
from that region tell them that? I think we have time for one more question. So if we're on the same page about um, dependency and that kind of thing, um, and partnering with the local church, what do you do in a setting when um, you don't have a local church with unreached peoples and uh, maybe even very few believers who are not no believers? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> okay, I was just in Djibouti. Uh, it's a small country right on the Red Sea. 99% Muslim. There's believers there. So we, 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 that's what we do. We seek those out. I was in Saudi Arabia in uh, May. It's different. Yeah, because there's not a church there. So it, it's, a, it's a different approach. But as soon as possible, we establish a group of believers to start to think about the role of the church, even as small as it is. Speak to working with family. Yeah. And uh, really in... Most cases, if we are looking and are in a hurry to move forward, we will miss the local church. Um, but as we go into countries like uh, was mentioned, Djibouti, um, seven years ago when we went, we, we did not know there were believers. Um, but God led us in amazing ways, so specific ways, even giving us names to the homes of believers and connecting with them and uh, getting into their underground world. And uh, today, the people who are working in our projects, in the projects that we are doing in Djibouti, are all believers um, because they're members of the underground church. Um, so there's, there's a way it can be done. Um, and it will, that's why prayer is so central, um, just seeking God and hearing him guiding um, that they can be empowered. One last question. Yeah, it, it really depends on um, who planted that indigenous church. Uh, some are independent churches uh, with just a pastor and ten people gathering there. Or it could be people meeting in a home of one of the believers in the underground church. It could be two people who are believers, and that's the church. That's the body of Christ in that community. Um, it could also be a Methodist church which will have the structure of a Methodist church because it was planted by the Methodists or, you know, all that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much.